1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel, a podcast channel with New Books Network. And today we are pleased to have Dr. Lee Penman with us. He's here to talk about a fascinating book he's uh, written. The book is called The Lost History of Cosmopolitanism, The Early Modern Origins of, an, of the Intellectual Ideal. Um, Lee, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you. It's a, It's a delight to finally be here.
1: Thanks. Uh, It's customary to ask our uh, guests to tell us a little about themselves, how they became interested in their field of expertise, and also how the book came about. So can you please um, tell us a little about yourself?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as you already mentioned, my name is Lee Penman. I'm a research fellow at Monash University on the uh, Global Encounters uh, project based at the Monash Center for Indigenous Studies um I think that I would describe myself as an intellectual historian if I was going to if I was going to uh, label myself um, but i've always been interested i 've always been interested in history um, as even as a kid uh, I played with Lego that was castles and pirates and things like that, so it was there was always this enthusiasm for the past that was there, and I continued that. At university i went to university of melbourne where i studied law and arts but um i quickly became i p- quickly became well an, unenthused about law It really didn't capture my imagination as much as the history subjects did um so i ended up completing a double degree uh, much begrudgingly completing a double degree in arts and law at the university of melbourne but i was determined after that to uh to go on and to do a PhD uh, in history, uh, which I did under the supervision of Charles Zika at Melbourne, you know, an internationally renowned early modern scholar. Now, one of the things that um, that I had been noticing during my undergraduate years, this, this theme that kept on coming up, was... Um, the idea of the end of the world. Now, this is going to sound a bit strange, Mortez. But, but, but bear with me for a second. I, I was watching the news in the 1990s, and there were these uh, instances of cults and uh, religious conflict, and there was Heaven's Gate and Alm Shinrico and sarin gas attacks in the Tokyo subway and things like this, and I was absolutely fascinated by these ideas. Uh, where did they come from? How did they hold uh, such a such power? In the modern world. And so it became obvious as I started to research my PhD that this is the kind of theme that I was going to undertake and focus on apocalyptic ideas. Look, and through through a series of coincidences, this led me uh, to 500 years ago, essentially, and I ended up doing my PhD on the subject of apocalyptic thought in early modern Protestant culture, because this was a time where apocalyptic ideas were very, very widespread and very inter- influential. and uh, I really wanted to know what, what society was like a uh, uh, society was like in which these ideas flourished. So in 2009, I completed a uh, PhD on the subject of, uh, of apocalyptic thought. In uh, Lutheran confessional culture, a very you know uh, a very approachable, a very um, non-specialized subject uh, that anybody can come to and enjoy. Uh, but that really uh, set the set the scene and uh, established a bit of a reputation that I had for working with uh, archival sources. And after that, I uh, took up positions at the University of Oxford on a postdoctoral fellowship. Um, at the University of Queensland as well, where I worked further on the legacies of uh, apocalyptic thought, and also uh, philosophers and thinkers who commented on um, on the subject. And uh, eventually, this kind of brought me to the the subject of cosmopolitanism, um, and. You know, what is the relationship between apocalyptic ideas and cosmopolitanism? Well, it's a, it's a strange and twisted one. And I think that brings me to the question of, of how this all came about, uh, which you also posed. So as I was working on the thesis, you know, from 2006, I started to notice every now and again that there were these statements about the cosmopolitan or world citizenship that were turning up in the, in the strangest of places, in Protestant polemics against heresy, in writings attributed to non existent secret societies, and also on tracts about the Last Judgment and the Apocalypse. And they were so strange that I began to collect them. They began to stick out. Um so Eventually, I had something of a corpus of these. I collected about 30 or so references, and out of interest, I began to look at histories of cosmopolitanism. But I was surprised to find that there was little or no space accorded to the figures or the expressions that I was finding. Uh, So they were unknown, or when they were mentioned, they were summarily dismissed or, or mostly ignored. And you know, most histories of the cosmopolitan idea uh, spend a bit of time discussing the cosmopolitan notions of antiquity, and then they leap almost 2000 years into the future uh, to the Enlightenment, and they're satisfied with that kind of historical work. So what I realized was that, that you know, many histories of the, of the cosmopolitan take this bizarre, anachronistic view of uh, of the cosmopolitan as a as a transcendent, a timeless sort of self-evident uh, truth, which is universal and so, almost exists in a sacred space that's separate to history, but. Of course, you know, as an intellectual historian, I think, well, this is this is this is rubbish. Every idea is the product of a human mind, and therefore, it has a history, it has a past, and it has, and there are contexts, you know, which shaped the emergence of the ideas. And that's that's when it seemed that you know this this body of references that I was slowly collecting could actually contribute to uh, to the historiography and to the scholarship um, that was that was already out there.
1: Mm. Uh, great great introduction, and uh, I really like the point you mentioned that there were references to the antiquity, and suddenly there's a huge jump to the Enlightenment, and that's why the book is called The Lost History of Cosmopolitanism. And I must tell you, like many other people, my understanding of cosmopolitanism is what is being universal, being accepting, being inclusive. But upon reading the book, it completely changed my mind. And um, let us start with uh, Erasmus, right? The person who is usually associated with uh, discourses about cosmopolitanism. He was the first. Uh, he was a person who called himself a citizen of the world. But the word cosmopolitanism in his discourse is different from what we have in mind. How did he use the word cosmopolitanism?
0: Yeah, Erasmus of Rotterdam is kind of the, the test case with which I opened the book to kind of, uh, to kind of show that uh, not everything is necessarily as it seems when it comes to the world of uh, scholarship on cosmopolitanism. So Erasmus was a Dutch humanist, uh, you know, renowned as being uh, as, a, as a philologist, an expert in languages an editor of ancient texts. And things of that nature. He also wrote uh, books like Kerala Pakis uh, of 1521, The Complaint of Peace, which propose and argue that, you know, there should be a condition of peace in the world in which uh, men can be brothers together. And, uh, you know, at, at, at first glance, if you're looking at this complex of ideas, it seems to coincide with you know, with what people, with what modern people, with what we associate today with cosmopolitan ideas. So I thought, well, Erasmus is, is discussed as a cosmopolitan, but what did he actually say about uh, the cosmopolitan idea? Um, and he first his the, the major statement that Erasmus made I found was suggested something very different to the to the associations that we have. Uh, uh, with Erasmus today, uh, because the statement was made in a letter to Huldrych uh, Zwingli, the, uh, the Swiss reformer, uh, in which Erasmus was declining an offer of Swiss uh, citizenship. And um, his words are worth uh, paying careful attention to. So Erasmus responded to this offer that he was most grateful to you and your city for your kindly thought. But my own wish is to be a citizen of the world, to be a fellow citizen to all men, a pilgrim, better still, if only I might have the happiness of being enrolled in the city of heaven, for it is thither that I make my way under the constant attacks of all this illness. Now, when I read this, um, having previously come across cosmopolitan ideas in, as I say, the the very strange backgrounds of uh, works of Christian uh, Christian um, um, polemic and uh, heretical literature. I was struck, first of all, by the fact that this is not a this was not foremost a secular statement of um, belonging to the world at large, but it was a statement that was informed by, it seems to me at least, uh, Christian ideas of being a stranger in the world, uh, as well as uh, there were debts there, and and of course being a, c- a citizen of the city of heaven, and there were also debts there to Stoic. Uh, ideas of antiquity as well. And so I thought with Erasmus, there is something going on here that requires further investigation. And it seemed to me an emblematic case of if we actually look at the words that were used by early modern actors, then it's possible to recover a very different kind of history in a very different context for discussing uh, cosmopolitan ideas.
1: and I um, actually before this question I wanted to ask you to kind of define cosmopolitanism for us but I, I know it's a very difficult <laughs> thing to do and you 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 use this expression cosmopolitan vocabulary in your first chapter because that's where it, that's what it means that there are different understandings, different conceptions and the whole conception has changed over time so uh, and, and it has its roots and origin as you mentioned maybe in early uh, modern period in Europe but can you maybe tell us what is what do you mean by cosmopolitan vocabulary and if there are any Eastern antecedents or precedents of this idea of cosmopolitanism that you might have come across?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the... The, the, there's a lot there to unpack uh, Morteza. you know like how do I define cosmopolitanism? I mean this this is a really important question because um, if you ask uh, if you ask a thousand people how they do it how they would define it then everyone will give you a, a different answer slightly different but you know all of these all of these differences eventually add up yeah. You know? So I, I'm a reluctant user of the word cosmopolitanism, or if I do use it, I like to use it in a technical sense, and that's really important for, for the book itself, yeah? Uh, the, the cosmopolitan idea and the cosmopolitan vocabulary, which I'll, I'll talk about uh, shortly, aren't always synonymous with the ideas in cosmopolitanism, yeah? So the Oxford English Dictionary dis- defines any ism as a, a system of theory and practice based around a certain idea. And so th- this may sound like a bit of a cop-out, but if you were argue- asking me to define cosmopolitanism, I would say that it's a, a system of theory and practice uh, concerning the idea of the cosmopolitan. Yeah. Now, why do I say that? It's because uh, one of the things that emerges in this book is... Um, is this sort of untold story, this lost history in a way of how we uh, came to think about, or think in terms of cosmopolitanism. Um, and this is the, uh, the story of the, emerg- the emergence of a, um, first of all, of the cosmopolitan vocabulary, which I talk about as the the primary discourse of cosmopolitan ideas. And then the, Gradual emergence in the eighteenth century of a secondary discourse or meta-discourse on the cosmopolitan vocabulary, and I argue that this is what this the creation of this space for the secondary discourse allowed the possibility of defining and talking about cosmopolitanism as a uh, as a, um, a system of of theory and practice. Um, but to get down to brass tacks, like what what is the cosmopolitan vocabulary? So. When writing and researching this book, as I mentioned, you know, what struck me were always those instances where words like cosmopolitanos, cosmopolites, citizen of the world, mundanos. I was reading books in German, in Latin, in English, uh, French, a variety of different languages. It was always these usages of words related to uh, our modern word cosmopolitan which uh, struck me and which uh, attracted my eye. And when I talk about the cosmopolitan vocabulary, what I mean by that is that um, what I follow in the book are the words as used by the, the historical actors themselves. Um, so words like cosmopolitanos, that is cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan, cosmopolites, and also uh, vernacular uh, cognates like citizen of the world, uh, cittadino del mundo, and others like that. That's that's the framework of the entire study, is to follow the usages of these very specific uh, words. Um, Now, one of the surprising things about all this is that, you know, after I identified a body of... um, of usages of the cosmopolitan vocabulary in early modern sources is that I started to wonder about, you know, this scholarship which looks at antiquity and says, you know, you have the birth of the cosmopolitan in antiquity, and then you race forward to the, uh, to the uh, 18th century. And so i thought all right well i can't write this history without researching what happened in antiquity as well and so i went looking for instances of the cosmopolitan vocabulary in antiquity and found that there were really relatively few um you know uh really relatively few only a handful certainly less than 10. um you know you and you have these you have these stories um which use the cosmopolitan vocabulary appearing relatively late as well um Diogenes of uh, Sinope you know is often uh, the, one of the members of the the cynic school is often identified as you know an, an originator of the cosmopolitan ideal um and when he uses the word cosmopolites um it's it's not in the sense of world community or anything like that it's uh, it's expressing a sovereignty over himself uh, and over his, um, it's almost like an indifference to the rest of the world, as opposed to uh, to an effort to join with it. When you look at other, um, when you look at other express, cosmopolitan uh, expressions from antiquity, such as in the the Roman Stoic school, you start to get very different ideas, also being expressed, but using the same vocabulary. You know uh, these claims. Um, like uh, Cicero's claim that, and Epictetus, who, uh, who both state that, you know, they are citizens of the world, or they attribute to Socrates um, this idea that, uh, that he was a citizen of the world, meaning that he was part of this, this kind of platonic uh, great city. So this is, uh, this is a very different kind of meaning being expressed using the same word, essentially. And I, I found that fascinating. I found it absolutely fascinating. Later, Philo of Alexandria, the, uh, the Hebrew theologian, uh, comes along and he uses, the, uh, he uses the word in yet another sense, and that is as a designation for Adam as the first creation, the first man. He had the whole world as, uh, as his place of residence and as his place of citizenship. And, you know, that was a third example of the cosmopolitan vocabulary and still a third idea, a third entirely different idea of, of its potential meaning. Um, and that's almost where you know, these kinds of usages sort of run out. After that, they seem to appear, or at least in, in my research, uh, I could only find them in, in works of the early Christian church in, uh, in, the, uh, in the Near East. Uh, in Syria, around uh, 300 C uh, of the Common Era, there were references to um, uh, Christians consti- being constituted to be citizens of the world. And you know, Ambrose, uh, the teacher of Augustine, um, has this this famous statement in which he sort of uh, mashes together uh, earlier statements of the. Cynic of the Stoic and of Philo of Alexandria's kind of uh, Hebrew idea of uh, of Adam as a citizen of the world, and he uses it as a synonym for something entirely different again, and that is the New Testament idea of the uh, the Christian uh, being a fellow citizen of the saints. That this idea of the cosmopolitan is actually related to not to an earthly city of the world but to a heavenly city that is yet to come the uh, the new jerusalem and um in his discourse he talks about how uh that christians are sp- foreigners and strangers on earth but they are citizens of the saints you know with reference to the epistle to the ephesians so um these are all kind of, um, these are all kind of uh, discussions of the cosmopolitan idea in antiquity, but what is striking about them is that uh, there aren't very many, first of all. Uh, secondly, of those that exist, they tend to describe very different uh, realities or associations with the cosmopolitan vocabulary, as, as in as much as they use the same word to describe different concepts and um, that by the fifth century, um, the vocabulary disappears. It is linked by Christian thinkers like Ambrose with the idea of heavenly citizenship in the Bible. And then zoop, that's the last that you see of it for uh, for nearly a thousand years.
1: Yeah. And because and, that's where you come to the second chapter of the book, there are two key figures you talk about in the second chapter. Uh, I'm not even going to pro- try to pronounce the first guy's name. My, my French is horrible. <laughs> I'll just his last name is Postel, if I'm not mispronouncing it, and also John D from England. So your argument is that, that these two figures were quite influential in, in uh, uh, let's say, in, in our understanding of the word cosmopolitanism. So can you talk about uh, Postel first? And also he had a book, The Republic of Turks, I guess. Uh, yeah, so what was that book about who was he and you talk about his life as well because his life story helps us understand uh his conception of the term cosmopolitanism so tell us about him who was he and uh what was his contribution to the idea of cosmopolitanism
0: Yeah, well, well, Postel's book, Gu- Guillaume Postel, his uh, his book on the Republic of Turks was published in fifteen sixty. And fifteen sixty, if, if you look at uh, histories of cosmopolitanism, it's it's often seen as this watershed kind of year in which, boom, the the, the cosmopolitan vocabulary pops back into the uh, into European consciousness. Now, it's it's not actually true. Um, it has been around since the earliest example of its usage that I found was 1516 um, but um, in departibus adium a kind of uh, uh, teaching teaching vol- humanist uh, teaching uh, volume um, that it's very likely that there are even earlier earlier usages as well that I haven't been able to turn up but uh, yeah 1560 nonetheless is seen as this kind of watershed moment and the, the person who is at the the epicenter of this uh, of this kind of uh, cosmopolitan awakening is uh, Guillaume Postel. Now, Postel is uh, is really a bit of a, a strange character, and this is why i I talked about uh, I, p- I talked about his biography in the book um, mainly in order to relay just how strange this person was. Um, but equally, it's to provide it's to provide the context for understanding why and how he used the, uh, the cosmopolitan vocabulary, the way he did. Um, Postel is often seen in the scholarship, you know, he was a, uh, he was a Frenchman. He, uh, he trained as a missionary. So he had this kind of idea that he could go out and he could, he would, you know, as part of his life's work, convert the, uh, the non-believers of the world to Christianity. Um... Uh, but he was also described by a contemporary as the most accursed and unhappy man that ever lived. Yeah, he uh, he was a brilliant young scholar, a mathematician, a cartographer, an orientalist, uh, very skilled in languages. Um, but at the same time, he was really he was really a troubled man as well. Um, and part of his troubles uh, had to do with his prophetic commitments. He believed that he and his work uh, played a significant role in the unfolding of sacred history in Europe. Uh, he believed that he himself was a, uh, a prophetic figure uh, who was destined to play a role in, uh, in securing um, what was, in essence, a, a vision of Christian universality uh, around the world. Um, when you approach a book like uh, on, the, on the Republic of Turks, it's a um, it's quite eye-opening to really consider what is going on there. Many of Postel's works uh, prior to this particular book had outlined this idea of um, world concord. Uh, De Orbis Concordia was published uh, in the 1550s or 1540s, you know, a few years. And in that book, he talked about the importance of the Christian Republic and how the Christian Republic would kind of as its destiny, it would, it, would, it would spread and it would conquer the entire world and turn the whole world into a, into a Christian republic, yeah, on the basis of what he called uh, right reason. Now, what he actually meant by that, uh, I'm, I'm not entirely certain. Um, he seemed to define it in, in various different ways. Um, but, you know, as part of this whole idea of uh, bringing the world in concord, um he advocated missionary activity he advocated the translation of the uh, the Quran into uh, into French and into other European languages and of course the New Testament into uh, into languages like Syriac and Ottoman Turkish and uh, and all this now you know this sounds like a very kind of enlightened you know uh, let's hold hands across the world sort of idea this notion of Concord and everything like that but it was anything it was anything but for Postel uh, you know it, he was he was prepared to tolerate in the sense of put up with uh, the existence of uh, of Muslims and and others uh, only because they played a role in the salvational history and the triumph of Christianity um, he he saw uh, other religions as merely being there to convert in order to 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 create this concord the concord was not um you know being happy with others and cooperating with others the the concord was to be established by conquering uh, others uh intellectually religiously and if that didn't work out then uh militarily as well and that was part of uh postel's vision um yeah it's uh, he he outlined in one of his works a yeah the, this this plan for the military conquest of the Ottoman Empire if uh, if all of his uh, missionary efforts came to naught.
1: Uh, so so his idea of cosmopolitanism was not anything about it was based on differences and uh, exclusivity rather than bringing all people together in, in a modern sense that we understand cosmopolitanism.
0: That's exactly right, yeah. I mean, and, you know, he he described himself as a, cos, as a cosmopolite, right? And, you know, what, what does that actually mean? Well, you know, we've seen that in antiquity, there's been the, the word, the cosmopolitan vocabulary was used in different senses and Postel used it in, in a different sense again. He used it to designate himself. He called himself a cosmopolite, right? Um, so that's, he's, he's just describing, uh, he's describing his own person, designating his own person, uh, with that idea. Not, it's not a conception of a community as such it's, it's himself, but it's intriguing that he brings this identity of the, of the cosmopolite interconnection with his plans for world Concord. And it seems to me that, uh, that what Postel is doing in his works is, uh, he's combining he's combining the cosmopolite as a prophetic idea and ideal applied to himself with the course of world history, with world history as a kind of sacred history. Um, so it, he seems to be using the term to situate himself within his own religious uh, religious goals and religious ideals. And it's probably also important to note that on the Republic of Turks was it was written when Postel was kind of in. Kind of in disgrace, there, were, there had been there had been uh, the issues uh, about his behavior. There had been questions raised about his sanity as well. But nevertheless, you know, he wrote this book, uh, which was uh, a manual of uh, of conversion of the uh, of the people of the Ottoman Empire, and he dedicated it to the um, to the the, uh, the the King of France as well. So, you know, he had this kind of um, imperial um aspect to the um to the to the idea of Concord it was it wasn't something floating around in the atmosphere it wasn't merely religious it was also related to French imperial power mm. uh,
1: we'll talk about the imperial connotations of cosmopolitan in a little while uh uh how about John d he was this British character who also lived for some time in Paris and he was uh familiar with uh Pasteur's work and he also himself wrote several books what was his uh or how did he develop the idea of cosmopolitanism
0: yeah d d is a is is a british character mate that's that's a, that's an excellent description because that he, he was quite a character uh possibly weirder even than postel uh yeah so look um d yeah he knew postel he definitely knew postel's works he owned uh, several of them and it seems that he was it seems that he was inspired somewhat uh, by Guillaume Postel's uh, writings on world concord to to formulate his his own ideas uh, from albeit from a British perspective. Um, now, uh, Dee was a uh, he was a jack of all trades in a way. He was an astrologer. He was a philosopher. He was an alchemist. He was a, a would be politician. Um, but he was also a a, a theorist of um a, a religious theorist and a theorist of concord and a theorist of unity now he has uh, cosmopolitan expressions in two books now one book is really strange and that is the the hieroglyphic monad uh of 1564 this book is uh short and very unusual it essentially outlines um, the the meanings of a of a symbol that Dee invented, and it kind of looks like a little <laughs> to me. The 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 monad symbol kind of looks like a horned devil. But uh, anyway, it, it can it combines these um it combines these uh, geometrical shapes, the circle, the the half circle, and everything like this into this kind of character. And according to D, every aspect of this of this symbol of this character has a kind of um, uh, kind of meaning. Anyway, he wrote this tract, the Hieroglyphic Monad, and he dedicated it to uh, the uh, Emperor Maximilian of the Holy Roman Empire. And one of the things that he mentions in in the tract is this idea of um, of cosmopolitics. Um, now, what? You know, it's close enough to, to cosmopolitan to kind of raise an eyebrow. Now, what he actually meant by this is is not is not quite certain. It's been debated by scholars. There are some who think that when D talks about cosmopolitics, it's it's strictly in a kind of Stoic register uh, that refers to the politics of the world. Um, uh, however, others have kind of uh, others have suggested, and I and I think they're right that um, that what D is talking about is is some kind of connection between. The New Jerusalem, the, uh, the the city of God, uh, with some kind of reflection and relationship between the earthly politics and heavenly politics um, at the same time, and you know he uh, he develops that idea in another book called the uh, the General and Rare Memorials um, pertaining pertaining to the perfect art of navigation, which was uh, published in 1577. And there's a passage in that book where he talks about himself. As a um, as a cosmopolite, uh, a, exactly as uh, Guillaume Postel did, um, and he calls the cosmopolite uh, a citizen and member of the whole and only one mystical city, universal. Uh, and uh, look, I I, I pause this. I take this to mean to be a, a reference to um, uh, to to Stoic ideas. It, it's redolent of uh, of Cicero's On the Laws uh, some statements that he made in that tract, but, uh, equally there is a Christian element here as well. You know, all of this is under the King Almighty, which is under God. Yeah. You know? And so what Dee is doing in, uh, the general and rare memorials as well is he is linking this idea of the mystical city universal, that everyone will be part of this universal city. He's linking it to, uh, English, uh, British, uh, naval power as well. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And really outlining this idea that um, that um, it is the, the the English right to uh, to take possession of of territories in, in other places because they represent uh, the, the the will of God and uh, have divine sponsorship for their ideas.
1: Uh, let's move to chapter three of the book, and I must say that was my favorite chapter because I'm kind of I'm an, uh, I'm interested in the idea of cartography and how ideology is manifested through maps. And uh, the title of the chapter is "The Theatres of the World. And, I, and I, uh, I'm going to ask a few questions, and I wish that the listeners, I, I strongly encourage the listeners to pick up the book and have a look at the pictures that are included there. But let's, just as an introduction, can you tell us how is cartography related to cosmopolitanism or how are geographical explorations and expansions could be read as a manifestation of a uh, Protestant or Reformist worldview.
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, <clears throat> it's one of my favorite chapters as well, Morteza. I, I really enjoyed uh, researching it and and writing it. So, um, yeah. Look, cartography is is related to the to the cosmopolitan idea. Um, if we think of if we think of Postel and and D. You know, both of them were uh, encouraging um, uh, rulers to, to go out, uh, else out into the world and uh, to conquer uh, other civilizations or to engage with other civilizations. Now, cartography, of course, is is, is maps, right? It's it's part. Of, you can't do this without maps. You can't get from A to B without uh, without a, a figural representation of the world in this sense. And so, um, cartography is also a visual. Uh, kind of uh, medium. And so um, it was only natural that the sorts of uh, discourse about Christian universalism and about some ideas of the cosmopolitan uh, would end up being represented figuratively and figuratively uh, on some maps. Now, an important part of this was, of course, uh, the specific influence of people like Guillaume Postel, because in addition to everything else that he did, he was also a map maker as well. You know, he uh, he surveyed part of the uh, of the Levant. Um, he created maps. He created um, you know specific projections of maps. He saw. He saw. And apparently others in early modernity also saw some kind of, some kind of relationship between representations of the world, cartographical representations of the world and sacred history, that the revelation of knowledge about new lands uh, was part of the, the sacred history um, of, of, of Christianity. And it was part of this story of how uh, Christianity uh, and the city of the world would be established on Earth. Um, and, you know, part of the background to this as well is that Dee and Postel weren't writing in vacuums. Yeah, they, as, as I mentioned earlier, the, there were voyages of exploration that were taking place at this time. And so, you know, Dee's book, The General and Rare Memorials, uh, as we heard, it, it pertained to the art of navigation itself. So it was effectively a book about navigation, about taking people elsewhere across the planet, of um, uh, the face of the planet. But um, was strictly, it was, it was, it was related intrinsically within the the early modern worldview uh, to this kind of um, cosmopolitan and so also apocalyptic interpretation of history as well that these are the last days um the book of daniel uh daniel chapter 12 mentioned is a prophecy which mentions that in the last days uh, many will run to and fro and knowledge shall increase and uh you know to christians of the time who were attuned to apocalyptic and prophetic ideas um, the fact that people were coming back to europe with knowledge of new lands and new people uh, seemed to really both fulfill this running to and fro part of the prophecy, but also the increase in knowledge part of the prophecy as well. So there were a, a kind of a, a variety of ideas that uh, that created this uh, this nexus between geographical discovery, and, uh, and apocalyptic worldviews, prophecy, and, and exploration. And this, this couldn't help but be represented on maps of the time as well.
1: And uh, so uh, how about there, this figure you discuss in the book, Nicholas to Nikolai's. how about his ideas about the duties of a Christian cosmopolitan and, and he was also influenced by by Postel as well.
0: Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. So um, the Nikolai, uh, so, so Postel and these works, they had modest reception histories um, in which um, several of which also used the cosmopolitan vocabulary and Introduced other ideas into the um, into into the notion of the of the cosmopolitan the cosmopolitan idea, so Nikolai was one. He was a he was a geographer. Um, he was uh, an author of, of of several books on geographical subjects, and he really picked up. Um, you know, he was also firmly a Christian, but he picked up this stoic uh, this stoic notion of the the city of the world, and uh, he counted Postel among the great strangers, uh, excuse me, the great peregrinators and travelers of the past, like, uh, Noah, Jason, you know, Hercules, Pythagoras, even Marco Polo, um, who were, he, he saw them as, as these kind of harbingers of a, uh, of a, of a worldwide community, which, uh, which stitched together uh, truth with geographical disparition. Yeah. Um, and uh, Nikolai was also, you know, a, a major figure. He was, he was an advocate of Postel's idea to translate uh, the Quran as well, uh, believing, like Postel, that, you know, the French crown could establish uh, their own glory and God's glory by, uh, by you know, creating this, uh, this worldly kingdom. There are, there are other examples of, um, of the reception of, of Postel in D2, Um, William Barlow was one, uh, an Englishman who talks about uh, cosmopolitics and the navigator's supply, but he seems to take a very different view of the cosmopolitics. Um, uh, He he seems to consider that to be a, uh, he paraphrases D, but he seems to consider cosmopolitics to be about worldly politics and not heavenly politics. Um, I mean, I guess what you're seeing here is that even within like a narrowly Narrowly prescribed area, like geographical uh, ideas, there was still plenty of room for these statements to be interpreted and reinterpreted, or even misinterpreted, and uh, and new associations to be brought into connection with uh, with the cosmopolitan vocabulary.
1: So, how about John D. Uh, John D.'s ideas in England? What because it was at that time that England was also expanding its imperial power. Uh, there were uh, the British imperialism was expand expanding was his. Where is ideas influential or uh, impacted uh, British Imperial expansions
0: yeah it's it's a really good question if if I was uh, if I had to give an answer I would say I'm I'm not certain um, it's I think it's I think it's probably more helpful to see Dee's work as part of this sort of um, occult fifth column if you will, in, in literature about imperial expansion, because there are other works out there which justify the building of empire, not, not so much from, um, you know, the kind of abstruse, uh, symbolic, um, occult, alchemical sort of uh, context that D puts out there, but, um, but from, you know, for, for far more mundane reasons. Uh, such as commerce and uh, and and territory and, and, and things of that nature. Um, you know, but then again, Dee's ideas were repeated by by various authors. Uh, there is Samuel Purchas, uh, for example. Well, I mean, Richard Hacklite, the um, the proponent of exploration. In uh, he mentioned Dee's work. Uh, he quoted from Dee's books, uh, and there were a great many readers. Uh, of, of his works. Samuel Purchase uh, was another one, you know, an Anglican clergyman who, uh, who wrote a, a continuation of, of Richard Hakluyt's work uh, as is pos- posthumous. And, um, you know, that book contained uh, an incredible kind of figural uh, title page, which uh, united many of the themes that uh, that we've been discussing, Morteza, here uh, about... Um, you know the the a map of the world. You know this is this amazing title page, which features a map of the world um, at the bottom, and yet at the top, it has this kind of figural representation of sacred history of um, of the British, uh, more specifically the English, as the chosen people um, who will who will establish God's kingdom on earth. It's uh, it's really um, fascinating to see this material, and you can see that. In France, uh, you know, uh, Postel had this kind of reception by Nicolai and by others who saw the French kingdom as being the, the agents of this territorial expansion and the creation of this heavenly city, if one can call it that. Uh, while in England, uh, you had, um, well, John Dee and, and the people who read his works kind of describing the, the establishment of this heavenly city uh, under, under English uh, imperial power. And, of course, if you look at John Dee himself, he dedicated his works to all kinds of uh, monarchs and rulers like the Holy Roman Emperor too, right? So, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of room for everybody if they want to take up this uh, this prophetic role uh, in the mm-hmm. apocalyptic
1: drama. And, and there was this picture in the book that kind of fascinated me uh fool's cap a world map on a fool's cap and i wish and and like i said i do strongly encourage our listeners to pick up the book and have a look at that picture it's on page 45 uh can you talk about that picture because you do a couple of pages discussing the relation of that picture to um, cosmopolitanism and cartography
0: yeah that's exactly right it's it's a fascinating image isn't it i mean i I can remember when i first saw this as an undergraduate and i just thought what on earth is this supposed to be like what does this represent what is this it's so unusual i'd never seen anything like it in early modern visual culture at all um yeah it is a uh for those listening who don't have the benefit you should be you should be like googling this as a as i say it it's the, the fool's cap world map and what it represents essentially is a uh, well. It has uh, a jester. It's like a court jester. It depicts a court jester, but instead of a face, the court jester has a a, a map of the world. Yeah, it's a really incredible. It's a really incredible image. Now, uh, that's that's not the only thing that's that's on this particular image as well. Um, there are uh, throughout various um, across the image. There are various aphorisms, which. Um, drawn from the works of antiquity and from the bible um which uh draw attention to the foolishness of the world or the vanity of the world um so you know from jeremiah in the old testament all men are without sense uh you have um you have uh, perseus flaccus's uh uh uh, refrain over oh, the toils of men the emptiness of life and indeed on the on the fool's cap itself you have this uh, you have this message that this head is uh you know uh uh, uh, uh is worthy of a dose of hellbore which was a uh, a potent poison now the the strangest thing about this uh this kind of conjunction of images the jester and the map is that it actually has um cosmopolitan vocabulary attached to it because in the cartouche uh, next to the image um, we read that uh, democritus of abdera laughed at the world uh, heraclitus of ephesus uh, wept over it and epictonius Cosmopolites engraved it and uh this is this is really quite unusual um the designer the creator of the image claimed to be called um epictonius cosmopolites but this is this is an obvious pseudonym yeah um but we are supposed to understand uh from this that uh you know the the epictonius his first name derives from a greek word which means roughly he who dwells on earth and uh cosmopolites uh, means of course, a, a citizen of the world. Now, at first you it, it doesn't seem to make much sense. A citizen of the world who dwells on earth, well, of course, a citizen of the world would dwell on earth, right? Uh, but it seems to me that what the um, the correct reading of this name is supposed to be that the designer is a, um, uh, uh, one who dwells on earth. Uh, even though he is a citizen of the heavenly city, where the, city the city of the world, and this, in this uh, with this reference, is not an actual worldly city, but is the, is the heavenly city, the, uh, the mystical city of, uh, of uh, Christianity. Uh, that is at least my interpretation of it. The fascinating thing about this uh, particular engraving is that several years earlier, it was. Um, well, is that it was based on a woodcut that was created several years earlier, and uh, there is some evidence to suggest that uh, Guillaume Postel was involved in the the circle uh, that was responsible for the creation of the original woodcut. So, again, we get this this kind of uh, this kind of link uh, link back to Postelian uh, ideas of uh, prophecy and uh, and and apocalypse. Um, there have been various interpretations and discussions of this uh, of this map, the Fool's Cap World Map. Um, I don't know if any of them will ever get to the bottom of it, but uh, it is it is a fascinating kind of thing to contemplate. Uh, just a fascinating image.
1: It is. It is. Yeah. And you've given us plenty to think about in the book. <laughs> um, let's go to the next chapter of the book. that's chapter four, where you talk about the inversion of some of the positive connotations of uh the cosmopolitan vocabulary and there are several factors for that one of them is the language of scripture the other one stoic literature of antiquity so can you discuss that and also there is this person um, uh johan uh johan andreas that you discuss in the book uh because it was at that time that there was this shift of meaning from the citizen of the world to the stranger of the world. So can you talk about these ideas, please?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have to say that this is my favorite chapter, Morteza. You know, I mean, I, I like the last one, too. But uh, chapter four was was kind of my favorite. Um And mainly, it's because this is where I started. You know, this is when I was researching uh, my book, Hope and Heresy. These are the first references that I kind of found, and so which suggested to me that something very strange was going on with the with the cosmopolitan vocabulary uh, back in early modernity. All right. So um, with the with the. So uh, I just spoke about the, the pseudonym Epictonius Cosmopolites, yeah, and how it's it has it has the potential to be nonsensical if you uh, if you interpret it as a citizen of the world who dwells on Earth, uh, or it has the potential to make a lot of sense in a Christian register if you if you describe it or interpret it as a citizen of heaven who dwells on Earth. Yeah um, one of the one of the long time themes that was uh, that had been linked in the Christian imagination to the cosmopolitan vocabulary, in fact, since Ambrose, whom I mentioned uh, earlier uh, in our chat, was this idea that the citizen of heaven, that the Christian was a citizen of heaven, that uh, they are a, a stranger and sojourner on earth like a pilgrim uh, who only spends a little bit of time here, before they die, and then they spend eternity in heaven. So, you know, the time the time the Christian spends on earth is fleeting compared to the eternity that they will spend in their home, which is uh, where they have their citizenship. So, there was always a potential with uh, the cosmopolitan vocabulary and the cosmopolitan idea, as we have also seen, to kind of understand this in in different ways. Um, people used the cosmopolitan vocabulary to define themselves or to discuss others. And with that, there came certain connotations. If it was a positive thing, a citizen of the world could be well, a fellow citizen of heaven like me, but it could also be used negatively. And what happened in the 16th and 17th century in the wake of the Protestant reformation is that you had a cater of uh, reform oriented clerics um who looked askance if i can put it that way at um at the discourses of antiquity um particularly on the cosmic particularly discourses on the cosmopolitan and started to invert the associations the once positive associations um of phrases like citizen of the world in preference to phrases like citizen of heaven now one of those uh, clerics was Johann Valentin Andre, uh, who in several works, uh, kind of explored, um, explored this idea in the most, in, in a really creative and interesting way. I think he was, he was, he was enamored by this, uh, this metaphor of the life of a Christian lived as a kind of stranger on earth. And that, uh, we were merely uh, here for a short while and, uh, and and pilgrims here. And so he wrote a utopian uh, work, uh, Christianopolis, which uh, explored this idea. But he also wrote other books which went further into it, um, uh, such as a, um, a judgment on the horoscope of Christian Cosmosenus. And this was a rejection of the idea of the Christian as a citizen of the world. Uh, it associated all worldly things with uh, dross and filth and uh, and uh, vanity and uh, vainglory and things like that, and instead discussed the Christian as a as a citizen of heaven. Now, in order to do this, he actually created or he added to the cosmopolitan vocabulary. Yeah, um, he, he created the figure of the Cosm of Zeno's, um, who was a kind of. Uh, uh the 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 stranger to the world or the stranger in the world that's the 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 christian cosmosenus is a christian who is a stranger in the world that is uh the a kind of literal translation uh and you know xenophobia comes from the same kind of root as we have of of uh of cosmosenus zenos here so yeah, in order to express uh, this idea that the Christian should shun the world and shun its temptations and fleshly wonders and everything like that, uh, Andre uh, developed this kind of discourse of the Christian stranger. And uh, in one of his books as well, he also described, uh, the, the, well, he also put forward that the Christian should not only be a stranger to the world, but should also, a uh, cosmosenus, but should also be an enemy of the world, a, a cosmopolemos. Uh, which is you know like a militant identity that a, that a Christian should adopt uh, in order to forego sin and uh, and uh, and preserve their souls yeah um, there was also uh, you know Andre wasn't alone in this as well um, he also uh, uh, this 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 kind of um, this kind of uh, cosmopolitan inversion or inversion of the cosmopolitan vocabulary and its meanings, as I describe, it also took place in England, as well, where you have um, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of polemic against carnal worldlings and and things of that nature, and uh, the Stoic uh, uh, sayings of. Uh, uh, attributed to Socrates and Epictetus, uh, kind of brought up here again as being manifestations of a worldliness that has to be shunned, and um, you also get uh, other um, other coinages, other um, other words being uh, being coined to describe uh, Christians, um, such as Uranopolites, a citizen of heaven. As opposed to cosmopolite, a citizen of the world, and so what's what's going on here with all of these um, with all of these uh, religious sort of rejections of the cosmopolitan vocabulary is that um, you have this uh, you have this abandoning of of the cosmopolitan idea um, or the cosmopolitan language within. Uh, reformist-oriented uh, Protestant circles in favor of languages found in the Bible, um, such as citizens of heaven, um, strangers in the world, and uh, and things of that nature. So the chapter four of the book um, looks almost at how... Um, at how Christians, uh, almost wrote themselves out of the major story of, uh, of the, the usage of the cosmopolitan vocabulary, um, how they became estranged from a concept, which as we have seen, um, Christian ideas voiced by Postel, by, uh, by Dee and by numerous others, uh, were essential, um, uh, the, the Christian idea was essential to their views of the cosmopolitan. All of a sudden, um, uh, in the 17th century, in the wake of the Reformation, with the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, with the beginning of this kind of um, acute, uh, almost uh, forensic uh, legal demand for orthodoxy among various uh, among various uh, Christian uh, confessions, then all of a sudden you have, um, you have this focus on possible negatives associated with the term. Yeah. Until, you know, by the end of the 17th century, um, after the, after Samuel Crook and Johann Valentin Andre and others have sort of said, no, we're not citizens of the world. We are citizens of heaven. You have almost no kind of, uh, no Christian, uh, uh, discourse, Uh, which uses the cosmopolitan vocabulary, like in the centuries past.
1: And uh, let's uh, go to chapter five. That is where we discuss the rise of, uh, you know, the impact, the rise of science and also secular natural law and how the bedrock of modern secular cosmopolitan doctrine was formed. And you also talk about the Republic of Letters and how it changed the concept of cosmopolitanism. Can you discuss these ideas, please?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Morteza, uh, as I mentioned off-air, this was the hardest chapter to write. Um, it really was. This was... So, look, this chapter focuses, uh, in essence, on, 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 on three separate areas. And it was a hard... The three separate areas that have been identified by scholars of cosmopolitanism as being crucial uh, to the growth of of modern cosmopolitan mores, yeah, Muslim, modern modern cosmopolitan ideas. Um, however, if you actually go back and you you look at uh, occurrences of the cosmopolitan vocabulary uh, in these areas, those being, uh, the Republic of letters, uh, those being, um, the rise of natural law and those being, um, the scientific revolution and the growth of science. You do indeed find occurrences of the cosmopolitan vocabulary, but they are never, uh, decisive. They don't occasion any changes. They're not really impactful. They appear, uh, in these works but they're not essential to changing them. Yeah? So we have this kind of uh, tension between um, what uh, the historiography of cosmopolitanism tells us and what the actual actors kind of, of, of talk about in the works. Now, I mentioned that this was hard to write because in, in a way, uh, the move, the decisive move of the 17th century has already been made in chapter three. Uh, the Christians have written them themselves out of the uh, out of the cosmopolitan vocabulary, so to speak. They're pursuing, they're now pursuing their own citizenships of heaven and everything like that. What you what you have left by the end of the 17th century, then, is a bunch of authors working in nominally secular areas. At least we tend to think of these areas as secular uh, today. Uh, And they are essentially the only ones in the in the late 17th century who are using the cosmopolitan vocabulary. So if you were to uh, to look back, if you were going to search for uh, a role of cosmopolitanism, say, in natural law or in science, you would find it. And if you and if you never looked at the the religious uses of the cosmopolitan vocabulary, it would be very possible to have an, to, to develop an entirely false sense of what was going on in the 17th century. Because what it looks like is that, um, the cosmopolitan, uh, expressions were native, so to speak, uh, to these kind of, uh, uh, secular areas of, of endeavor. Um, and so, uh, you know, the chapter itself uh, goes through goes through very thing uh, goes through uh, several different things. Um, you know, one of the problems within the Republic of Letters, and this is also a an issue of the cosmopolitan vocabulary generally, is um, is is the cosmopolitan a, a a special a particular identity for a certain person, or does it describe everybody? Is everybody a cosmopolitan, a citizen of the world, are only a few people, a citizen of the world's uh, citizens of the world, and so this was this was discussed at that time and debated at that time by figures like uh, uh, Stefano Guazzo. Who uh, used a, a cynic idea of saying no? It's the it's the the individual, the person is the, the citizen of the world, and it's not a corporate kind of identity. Uh, whereas you had others like uh, Lipsius, like Pietro Pomponazzi, who said who took a more Ciceronian sort of approach, a Stoic approach, uh, influenced very much also by Christian ideas. I have to say of uh, of a world community in saying that you know no, there is um, that we, we have this corporate obligation and being a cosmopolitan is part of that is part of that identity is this corporate obligation to others such as within the republic of letters and uh, Pompo Nazi, uh, like uh, Marsilio Ficino uh, before him, connected this, uh, connected this sort of uh, idea of obligation with this uh, overarching scholarly kind of, uh, kind of network and wanted uh, and a network of communication and um, uh, you know, to foster this kind of virtual republic of learning. And uh, Justus Lipsius as well, um, you know, a, a philosopher of the Neo Stoic school also uh, pursued this kind of idea in, in, in several of his works, um, the Physiologia Stoicorum of 1604, uh, for example. You know, he he discussed uh, he discussed the the essentially cosmopolitan idea of uh, trafficking with others, uh, of of using this noble cosmopolitan identity, to then be a teacher to others as well, to, to, to help, uh, to help students and to help, uh, uh, people, uh, whom they encountered, um, you know, to, to, to raise themselves up and, um, and to, uh, to transcend, you know, their, 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 uh, earthly situation. Um... Similarly, you know, in, in discussions of divine law as well, a divine law in the development of natural law, the, uh, the cosmopolitan vocabulary appeared, um, but again, it was it was it was never it was never something that was it, it more accompanied discussions of um, of the movement that took place in the 16th and 17th century away from divine law to to more ideas of natural law. You know this this notion of divine law in the past, which was the almost the which had devolved to specific uh, specific peoples and to specific religions. Uh, Philo of Alexandria talked about it. Guillaume Postel talked about it as well. You know that the French, for example, would be the inheritors of uh, of, uh, of of God's will, and so whatever that what they did would be in accordance with divine law. Yeah. Of course, the wars of religion in France, the Eighty Years' War between the Spanish Habsburgs and the Netherlands, and the Thirty Years' War—you uh, know, which was uh, at least in its earliest phases, at least somewhat a religious war, a war of religions—showed um, quickly that there was a, a folly involved in, um, in you know, all of these, uh, all of these different uh, religious parties in Europe waging war against one another and all claiming that they, they, were, they were right, that they had the divine right to do so, and that God sponsored their actions. Um, uh, you know, this wasn't a feasible way forward uh, for, a, for, a, uh, for Europe. Um, as such, in the 17th century, you had uh, notions of, uh, of natural law uh, being brought to the fore as being kind of the governing uh, sort of idea that should uh, regulate uh, politics. And inevitably, the cosmopolitan vocabulary uh, was used uh, in these contexts, but only, only in the background, only in the background. Um, so, uh, you know, it's interesting that, uh, that in the historiography, the rise of natural law has been seen as one of the a locus of uh, the cosmopolitan ideal. And yet, uh, when you were looking for the cosmopolitan vocabulary within natural law tracts, it's it's almost nowhere to be found it's like a uh, a handmade if you will to the uh, to the main drama and as as for science uh well this this is a re- this is a really interesting one um you know uh again you have these kinds of nefarious characters coming to populate the story of uh, of the scientific revolution uh we're talking we're talking not about scientists who were scientists using the cosmopolitan vocabulary to describe, you know, their exchanges of experimental results and all that kind of thing, but rather it, uh, it was used to designate, um, uh, yeah, not, not designate contact and, uh, uh, between, between scientists, but to designate secrecy and to designate, um, sorts of ideas of, uh, of uh, of of trickery almost if you will yeah um you know a famous example of the use of the cosmopolitan vocabulary this time was by uh michael uh, sendevogius so won't bother to uh, to uh, to lambast you of my attempt to pronounce his polish uh, his polish name um but in 1604 he wrote this tract on uh, 12 tracts on the philosopher's stone and uh it was published anonymously And uh, at the conclusion or towards the conclusion of the book, he wrote that if you ask who I am, I am a cosmopolitan. If you know me and wish to be a good and honorable man, keep my name a secret. If you do not know me, forbear to inquire after my name, for I shall make public nothing more than appears in this writing. Um, Believe me, if my rank and station were not what they are, I should enjoy nothing so much as a solitary life or to have joined Diogenes uh, in his tub. So, this is kind of this this really cynic school inspired uh, usage of of the cosmopolitan vocabulary there which doesn 't have uh, which has nothing of the sorts of connotations of um, of uh, you know a, an overarching community of scholars or anything like that, or of sharing of information, which leads to this this revolution, which drives humanity forward and to a cosmopolitan state. It's a, it's used in a rather different way, and you you have uh, usages similar usages by other natural philosophers of the period as well, Giordano Bruno. For example, called himself an, an, an ass of God, a, a donkey of God, much like uh, Postel did too. And um, uh, yeah, various others. Who uh, was the George Starkey, is the one I'm thinking of, who, uh, who also adopted the cosmopolitan as this kind of pseudonym. Um, But then eventually articulated a uh, a sort of prophetic idea of his alchemical experiments being a gift of God that would help to transform, transform the world. So if if you were turning to the, sci- the the scientific revolution and that that term has its uh, has its uh, detractors and uh, and there's a considerable de- considerable debate about it, but if you were to turn to that material and looking for the cosmopolitan vocabulary to kind of document these waste stations on the way towards modernity, you would find uh, very few that would uh, fill you with confidence uh, that that was actually happening during this period. Instead, what you find is um, is a, uh, a, a rehashing and a reframing of all of the different sorts of cosmopolitan conceptions that we've seen in the past, the cynic, the stoic, and the Christian combining together. And probably the, the best is, uh, the last word should be left for Robert Boyle, uh, the skeptical chemist on this topic, who says that, um, who uses, who invokes uh, Socrates and Epictetus and others uh, when he says that, Whatsoever, therefore, philosophers do tell us of a wise man that he is nowhere banished because he is a citizen of the world. I must think a Christian everywhere in exile because he is a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem and but a stranger and sojourner here. And it's really interesting to see um, this sentiment, which comes straight out of like the, uh, the Protestant polemic of the earlier 17th century being expressed, but by a natural philosopher and by Robert Boyle, you know, a Royal Society member uh uh yeah so uh christians may have written themselves out of the cosmopolitan vocabulary vocabulary and out of this narrative uh with their own works but they continued to persist even in nominally secular um areas um an admixture of of christian uh cynic stoic uh uh, discourse on the cosmopolitan idea.
1: And and when, what happened in the eighteenth century? Because that's what was by, by the time we got to the eighteenth century was cosmopolitanism a homogeneous idea? Because you discuss both there are that there are both secular and also uh, sacred registers of the word, and maybe an examination of lexical tradition of the eighteenth century. What does it reveal about? Uh, the the shift in understanding of the concept of cosmopolitanism.
0: Yeah, this is the the subject of the sixth chapter, which is uh, Heavenly Cities of the 18th Century Philosophers, a a title which comes from a book by uh, Carl Becker, the uh, famous historian, um, who argued that... um, he argued for a kind of radical historical continuity during the enlightenment that the, the enlightenment is often seen as this major break. You had what came before and somehow you've got this enormous break that takes place. And then there is only the enlightenment ideal. And Becker was arguing that the enlightenment certainly injected new ideas into kind of the public sphere and into public discourse. But really what it did is that it, he he says something like it, it, Demolished the city of God of St. Augustine, only to rebuild it with new materials. Uh, and it's so it's this idea of the recycling uh, that took place and the, the continuity of early modernity with the Enlightenment era that I really want to really get at in this chapter. And it's in it's in this chapter too that the kind of the, the secondary, but but probably most important argument in the whole book emerges and that this is this chapter documents the creation of the discursive space where you have the opportunity for people to conceive of cosmopolitanism for the for the first time uh, as, a, as a system of thought and practice about ideas of the cosmopolitan now in the from historically before before the 18th century there were all kinds of different cosmopolitan conceptions yeah cynic stoic Christian uh, anti-christian you know all of these things and people were using them willy-nilly like uh, it just it could mean one thing one time and it could mean another thing another time. Francis Bacon uh, for example, uh you know in in two in two of his uh in two of his essays i believe he uses the citizen of the world he uses it in a positive sense in in one essay and then six years later in another one he describes someone as a citizen of the world in a negative sense you know like they are, are a renegade so a, a bit a feature of all of this, this chaos of usages is that no one is really reflecting on what the words mean. There is certainly no, there is certainly no, um, uh, no accord between different people about, um, you know, what the word cosmopolitan means, what a cosmopolitanos is, what a what a cosmopolite is, or anything like that. People just use the words, and they meant what they meant. And if we can't recover that what they mean from their context, then well, we don't really know. You know what I mean? In the 18th century however this changes for the first time and it changes because people start to reflect on historical usages of the cosmopolitan vocabulary and in by doing so they start to think about cosmopolitanism for the first time now the crucial thing and I'm glad that you mentioned this in your in your question was to me it was the rise of the uh, of the lexical uh, tradition in Europe. Now the words cosmopolitan or cosmopolite, the, the cosmopolitan vocabulary had appeared in, uh, dictionaries before, I think in the 1650s in England, uh, Blount's glossographia contained the word cosmopolite, but it had this really obtuse, uh, uh definition, It just said a citizen of the world. As we know, that could, that could mean anything, right? Um, but in the 18th century, um, you started to have these projects uh, which reflected on this kind, this kind of raw cosmopolitan vocabulary. Um, you know, a, a watershed moment here is uh, the Dictionnaire Universel of uh, 1721, of uh, which is uh, an enormously influential kind of... Uh, uh, definition of the cosmopolitan idea. And, um, it provides, you know, the dictionnaire uh, defines a cosmopolitan as a, um, uh, a word that is sometimes used in jest to designate a man who has no fixed abode or a man who is nowhere a stranger. Yeah. These are, these are, uh, meanings that are familiar to us. Uh, it, devi- it derives from the Greek word cosmos, the world, and, um, and polis the city and signifies a man for whom the world is his city or fatherland an ancient philosopher upon being asked from whence he came responded i am a cosmopolitan the unknown author of an excellent alchemical tract titled lumen Chemicum* gave himself the name cosmopolitan so we have references there to things that we that we know about right um the ancient philosopher is either Diogenes or it's Socrates, depending on whether you, you prefer the Cynic or the uh, uh, Stoic tradition. And the author of the alchemical tract is, is Michael Sendivogius, uh who, who we just discussed, who called himself a cosmopolitan. But this, this dictionary uh, entry shows a reflection on various historical usages. It shows a, 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 a a broad sort of uh, selection of meanings that the word could have, which is what a good dictionary should do. Now, um, but on account of the influential nature of this dictionary entry, it it, it also created a problem. And that problem emerges when the substance of the dictionnaire Universel is used by Ephraim Chambers in his Encyclopedia or Universal Dictionary of the Arts and Sciences in 1728, seven years after the publication of the French uh, Dictionnaire Universel. And Ephraim Chambers just basically translates selections from uh, the Dictionnaire Universel. He keeps most of the elements, but not all of them. there was also a, a German dictionary writer, uh, Frisch, who, uh, who also, um, I don't want to say ripped off, but let's say plagiarized uh, the majority of the Dictionnaire Universal's uh, entry. And um, now, if you were a historian and you were to look at these three dictionaries, one produced in Germany, uh, one produced in England, and one produced in France, they all say the same thing essentially about uh, about the cosmopolitan word, right? Now, this would give you the false impression that the, cos- the word cosmopolitan meant exactly the same thing in England, France, and Germany. But in reality, uh, there's this kind of uh, lexical promiscuity going on, where you just have the, the author of one dictionary copying the uh, the earlier the earlier definitions. Yeah, so there's no relationship. What I'm trying to say is there's no relationship between the definition of the cosmopolitan with how the word was actually used yeah because we have no mention for example in the dictionnaire universel of the of Johann Valentin André, for example we have no mention of the french Pyrrhonists, for example we only have a few a few scattered kind of uh, references there's nothing about postel there's nothing about a prophetic identity there's nothing about citizens of heaven or anything like that right and yet as, this, as, as the book shows, these, these discourses were out there, but they just weren't reflected in the, the dictionary definitions. Now, the most important, the most important and influential thing about the entry of the Dictionnaire Universel is that it also furnished the basis for the entry on the cosmopolitan, which featured in Denis Diderot's uh, Encyclopédie. Of 16, 1751, and this is seen as the the kind of foundational statement uh, on the cosmopolitan uh, of the Enlightenment. Yeah. Now, um, what Diderot did in his uh, entry is that he deleted the reference to this uh, to this kind of alchemical history. We don't want any of that rubbish uh, sullying this idea of the cosmopolitan. Um, we don't want any of the other nonsense as well about uh, we can keep the ancient philosopher, but let's also introduce, you know, uh, a, a quote by my mate uh, Montesquieu, who talks about obligation to family and stuff like that. And um, so he does that. That's what that's what Diderot does in this entry. So he has crafted a kind of cosmopolitan thing, a, a, a kind of a definition of the cosmopolitan in the encyclopedia, which is based on an earlier dictionary definition. Um, but he has selected which of these historical usages he is comfortable with, and he leaves, he leaves the rest out. Yeah. Um, but most importantly is that the entry in the encyclopedia doesn't exist by itself. Uh, because at the end there is a cross-reference to another article in the encyclopedia, and that is to the article on the philosophe or the philosopher. Yeah. So, what we get with the, the Encyclopédie and its entry on the cosmopolitan is this attempt, kind of for the first time, to uh, grasp and grapple with and shape and reshape the cosmopolitan identity and to apply it to a, a broader swath of the, of the community. If we actually turn to the entry on the Philosoph um, in the Encyclopédie, uh, then we find that it's actually a really remarkable a really remarkable entry because um, the author, who is anonymous, but was possibly César uh, Chesnot du Marseille, um, he was clearly aware of, uh, of the Christian discussions of uh, being a stranger nowhere in a world because he explicitly says that our philosopher does not find himself in exile in this world. He does not at all believe himself to be in enemy territory. Yeah, this is a direct response to the, uh, to the Christian ideas of the stranger uh, everywhere in the world with that idea. You know, It's almost as if he's taking on Johann Valentin Andre uh, in that particular entry. Um, and of course, Dumas is also not happy with uh, Justus Lipsius and Neo-Stoicism as well. He says, the philosopher is an honorable man who acts in everything according to reason and who joins to a spirit of reflection and precision, morals and sociable qualities. From this idea, it is easy to conclude how far removed the insensitive sage of the Stoics is from the perfection of our philosopher. So what he's saying there is that, what he's claiming is that, you know, the Philosoph, this, philosoph, this idea of the philosopher is something completely new. It's something completely new and wonderful, and we we have invented it. You know what I mean? And the philosopher, the identity of the philosopher, is intrinsically related to the cosmopolitan. Yeah, that there is that link between the two articles, uh, the cosmopolitan and and the philosopher in the encyclopedie, and you can't have one without the other. So here we have this. Here we have this. The first, the first inkling, I think, of. Um, of what becomes this kind of uh, at the beginning i spoke about this transcendent cosmopolitan idea right i think here is its kind of first historical sort of expression that you can be a philosoph and you can be a cosmopolitan and none of this is related to uh to any of this Christian nonsense or any of this Stoic stuff. It's something something completely new. It's this truth that exists out there, and we have plucked it and we have expressed it in these pages. And um, this is the beginning of the discourse of cosmopolitanism, yeah? Because uh, what becomes cosmopolitan after this point is anything related to the substance of these dictionary entries. And... Yeah, there are there are several historians who've written about the history of cosmopolitanism, who have unfortunately swallowed the the story of the philosophs uh, a hook line and sinker. Yeah, they have uh, they have failed to actually realise that. Yeah, it was actually the the philosophic identity built was built as it was expressed in the encyclopedia was actually built on the trials and the tribulations of early modernity and of the uh, the 16th and the 17th centuries and that you can't actually have uh you know this uh, this philosophical cosmopolitanism um, without uh, without those earlier expressions yeah this could only happen because of what came before not despite
1: yeah? yeah and and to me it was also that was an interesting part of this chapter that the french Philosophers sort of appropriated that idea of cosmopolitanism, uh, that they use its synonymously with philosopher. Uh, yeah. uh, Dr. Lee Penman, thank you very much for this fascinating conversation. And I do strongly encourage our listeners to pick up the book and read it. It's a very, very dense book. There's a lot to learn from the book. I've read it once, and as I told you earlier, and as I was reading it, I found myself taking just a lot of notes and i'm sure i need to go back to some of them and revisit some parts of the book again
0: <laughs> yeah well look thank you for the kind words mortessa right. look you say it's dense hey it's only 130 pages long in the text if you ignore the footnotes so it's,
1: <laughs> it may be dense but it's not that thick so yeah, that's a yeah positive. you're right yeah yeah it's you you can go through the book i mean time wise you can fairly go through the book fairly quickly but I mean, because I, I i don't have the history background so i have I read it slowly and I, like I said, and I did find myself going back to the footnotes as well because I was trying to make connections with my previous writings. But yeah, it's not a terribly long, It's it's 100 and uh, excluding the footnotes, it's being <laughs> precise. <laughs> it's 130 pages, yeah. So it's not that long, you're right. <laughs> Thank you again for being on New Books Network.
0: Thank you, Morteza. It's been a pleasure, mate.